you guys to open in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Uh, you should, um, they're all of Amelia, if Amelia wants to pass those around. So, this is the second part of, uh, this is the second part of our Praying Through the Psalm series. It's been over a month since we've gone through our regularly scheduled Sunday stuff. So, I'm going to remind you what we're doing. Uh, one of the things that is extraordinarily important in the Christian life is that you pray. And prayer is one of those things that I can talk to you about prayer until I'm blue in the face, but you need to actually do it. It's like a sport. If you've got someone who knows all the rules of basketball and they've spent their entire life studying the rules of basketball, but they've never played a single game of basketball, they're not a basketball player. You need to actually play the game. And in the same way, with prayer, I can tell you all about prayer. I can try to teach you about prayer, why it matters, how to do it, all that good stuff. But you need to actually do it. And so what we're doing is we're going through a few sections of the book of Psalms, which I read the book of Psalms when I was in high school for the purpose of learning how to pray. Because the majority of the Psalms are prayers. And so you can learn how to pray by reading them. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be praying through a psalm. And when I say praying through a psalm, we need to remember Matthew 6, 7. It says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentile do, Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. There are people who treat prayer like a spell book, where they memorize prayers, and maybe they memorize a psalm, where they memorize the Lord's Prayer, and then they use it in a way that Jesus never intended. So when I say praying through the Psalms, I don't mean quote a Psalm like it's a spell book. Instead, you're supposed to read the Psalm, see the way that this person is praying, and then you can model your own prayer after that. Because you might not necessarily know what to talk about. So having someone else's prayer in front of you can help you think through praying on your own. So the thing to also remember, prayer is not about the action of praying. There's a difference between saying a prayer and praying to God. Prayer is an intensely relational thing. Prayer is you talking to God. So you need to be making sure that when you pray, that you're making this prayer your own. You would never walk up to your parents and then read them off some memorized script of how to ask your parents for a piece of cake. You would never go up to a friend and then read some memorized prayer that you've heard is good for developing friendships. That's not how you interact with people. And that's not how you should interact with God. And so we need to make these prayers our own. We're going to be going through Psalm 51. Uh, last time we went through Psalm 5 and we talked about praying for righteousness. But one of the other things that you're going to find you have to pray for pretty often is praying for forgiveness. Um, you're going to end up in the course of your life praying for forgiveness a lot more often than you would like to. And so it's valuable to see an example of how you do that. And Psalm 51 is my personal favorite psalm. And so we're going to be going through it. All right. So the way that this is going to work, might as well give you that as well. We're going to read through a section of the psalm. I'm going to briefly explain what it's talking about and why it's useful. And then we're going to break off on our own, just kind of throughout this room, and we're going to pray. We're going to pray for like four or five minutes, and this is going to be about actually getting you guys praying, giving the opportunity to practice with a little bit of guidance, and then hopefully when you go home, you'll be able to pick up a different psalm and be able to do this same process a little bit more easily. This is about making it as easy as possible for you guys to start a prayer habit in your own life. So we're going to do that here. Okay, Psalm 51. So first things first. 
to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, we talked about the story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba, or sorry, David, sleeps with his best friend, with one of his best friend's wives, and then, well, sleeps with one of his best friend's wife, and then, to cover it up, murders him, marries her, and then God comes to him and says, okay, you think you hid that, you think that no one knows about that, I know about that. And so Nathan goes, confronts David, and then David repents, and God says, okay, I've forgiven you, you're not going to die, but also um, a lot of stuff is going to happen in your life now. A bunch of your kids are going to die, you will not see peace for the rest of your life because you have done this thing. And then the remainder of David's life is uh, eventful, shall we say. So this is a psalm written about, uh, by David at the time of his repentance, about his repentance, and so it's a fantastic example of how do you repent from major sin. Like committing adultery with someone and then murdering their husband, that's not exactly one of those things that you like sweep under the rug. And sometimes we can have this feeling of, wow, I've sinned so much, I can't go to God with this. It's like, okay, hold up. Did you sleep with your best friend's wife and then murder him? Odds are no. And frankly, if, even if you've done worse than that, you can still repent to God. But it's nice to have an example of someone repenting when it was like a really major thing. Okay, with all that front loading, let's start. In verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin and cleanse me from my, uh, sorry, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So there's a couple things to re recognize from this. First of all, just come right out with it. You need to repent. You don't need to beat around the bush and make sure you soften God up before you talk to him about the thing that's really on your mind. Literally just start. Start with repentance. Uh, have mercy on me, O God. First line of this psalm. So that's the first thing. Have mercy on me, O God. When you're praying for sin, just come out with it. Additionally, you're praying and you're asking God for forgiveness because you have faith in his attributes. He says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We repent to God because we know that God is a forgiving God. And finally, do you get the vibe from this that David is minimizing his sin? God, I know that you'll forgive it because it wasn't that bad. I'm a sinner and sinners sin and I know that uh, you know that I'm a weak man. It's not that big of a deal. This shouldn't be that hard for you to forgive. I mean, you don't know the circumstances around what I did. They don't make it as bad. Like, no. David is not at all minimizing his sin and neither should you. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David says, I deserve whatever comes to me, but I'm sorry. David's not repenting to get out of judgment. Like this isn't one of those things where your parents say, say sorry, or I'm going to ground you. And so you're like, fine, sorry. Like, no. David says, I'm apologizing, not because I want to escape the consequences, but even if you still give me consequences, that's fine. That's just. I'm still sorry. And so, you shouldn't minimize your sin. 
And that's one of the things that's important. The Christian response to sin is not to minimize sin or to say that the sin was okay. It wasn't. The Christian response is to say, yeah, that was unacceptable. I have no excuse. There is no excuse. I deserve whatever penalty you give me. Also, I'm sorry. It was wrong. I pray that you would have mercy on me. That's a fundamentally different response. There's person after person after person that will minimize their sin, that will make excuses for themselves, or that will try to do that for other people to comfort them. As a Christian, if someone has done something sinful, your response to them should never be, hey, it wasn't that bad. God understands. Absolutely not. Your response should be, yeah, that was absolutely terrible. Jesus can cover that. And that's a completely different perspective. And that's the perspective that David has in this psalm. So for at this point, as we pray, pray that God would forgive your sin. I'm, I'm sure that each of us probably has a particular sin that we've committed in the last week that we could pray for forgiveness about. If you don't, ask God if there's anything that you haven't repented for. And in my experience, he's generally pretty good about bringing something to mind. Um, <laughs> but each of us has sin because we're sinners. So let's pray that God would forgive some of our sin. So as you're praying, pray that God would forgive your sin. This is not about minimizing your sin as no big deal. This is an acknowledgement that your sin is major and asking God to forgive you anyway. So let's break off individually for a few minutes. I'll call us back together when the time's up. But for a few minutes, let's pray that God would forgive sin. On to the next portion. Bless you. So the first thing is that you're acknowledging the actual sin that you've committed. That was that first section. You're praying about a, a sinful act, right? But now we go on to verse 5. And David continues, and he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So here what we're seeing is that David isn't just repenting for the specifics. I see, yeah. Hyssop. Hyssop is like an herb. It's a plant. Something that cleans you. Yeah, it'd be like wash me with bleach. Yeah, like it's, you know, wash me with soap. Wash me with bleach. Clean me up. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know the specific plant, but it's, it's obviously a cleansing agent. All right. So purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. All that good stuff. So the first section, David's referring to the sin itself. You know, hey, my transgression, my sin is ever before me, the things that I've done. But then David also turns to his inward character. Because there's another way that we can tend to respond to sin. We can be like, yeah, I sin, but I'm a good person. I'm generally on the large pretty good. Like, that was out of character for me. God, I'm sorry that I, I acted out of character that one time. I know I'm a good person, and I'll go back to being a good person, but I did this one thing one time. No. That is not at all how David views it. That's not at all how a Christian views it. In verse 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What this is referring to is the fact that every single person in their inward nature, as a core aspect of who they are, is a sinner. You're born with a sinful nature. You're born, and you already have in you this innate desire to sin. 
in Romans 7, Paul talks about how sin takes advantage of the law, where when he finds out that something is sinful, he automatically wants to do it. It's like, I didn't want to do that before, but as soon as I found out that was sinful, there's actually a part of my inward being that wants to do it just because it's sinful. And so every person has what we call a sinful nature, and that's what that is. It's this innate desire in every person to sin. Not necessarily like to eat bread and you're hungry, and maybe in this context it's wrong to eat that bread. Like maybe it's someone else's food. So you have a desire to eat that food, but it's not because it's sinful in and of itself, it's because you're hungry even though it's someone else's food. But then there's also this secondary thing in you where as an aspect of who you are, the fact that it's someone else's bread actually makes you want to steal it. And so different people have that in different proportions in different areas of their life. But as a person, that's a part of a a sinful fallen nature. So as we would say, there are no good people. There are only sinners. There are bad people. And then there's Jesus. So... And then there's Jesus. Yeah. So David is saying, um, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying from the time I was conceived, I was a sinner. I had a sinful nature from the time that I was conceived. He's not saying that like he was sinning in the womb, but from the womb, you have this innate aspect of who you are, where as soon as you're born, you're going to act out this sinful nature because it's already in you. It's baked in. And so David is saying, as a core aspect of who I am, from the entirety of my life, I am a sinner. And yet you delight in truth in the inward being. So there is a massive gap between what God wants us to be and what we actually are. No Christian thinks to themselves, I'm a good person, but I acted out of character when I did that sinful thing. No. A Christian recognizes that not only did you do the sinful thing, and yes, the sinful thing was sinful, but additionally, you are a sinner. I am not a good person that sins sometimes. I'm a jacked up person that sins as a normal consequence of who I am. And in fact, when I'm not sinning, that's because of God being merciful to me by either not allowing me to be tempted as much as I might have otherwise been, giving me the spirit to help me do the not sinful thing. But as a core aspect of who I am, I am a sinner. There is a massive gap between what God wants of me and what I actually am. So he says, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David is recognizing there is a massive gap between what I should be and what I actually am and God can bridge that gap. I can't do that, but God can. God can clean me. God can make me whiter than snow. God can blot out my transgressions. I can't do that stuff on my own, but God can. And so he prays for God to do it. And so when you're praying and repenting, you're not just asking that God would forgive that particular sin. You're praying and you're repenting for the core aspect of who you are, the fact that you are a sinner. And you're saying, God, help me be better. Grow me. Sanctify me, if we were to use like Christianese. That's one of the main things the Holy Spirit does in your life. The Holy Spirit causes you to grow. And so as a Christian, when you're praying for sin, you should be praying that God can help you grow and recognizing that he's able to. David's not saying, hey, purge me with hyssop and maybe I'll be clean. If you try to wash me, you might actually be able to do it. He's saying, God, if you choose to do these things, you absolutely can. So he's praying in faith again. And that's something that we're supposed to be doing. So we're going to break up again for a few more minutes. And as we pray, you need to acknowledge that your sin is not a lapse in your good character, 
but a demonstration of your sinful character. There is a massive gap between what you are and what God wants you to be. So you should pray that God would not just forgive you for this sin, but that he would be forgiving you for your sinful character. Not just sinning, not just forgiving you for that time that you rebelled, but forgiving you for the fact that you are a rebel. So let's break off again. Let's pray for that. Repent for who we are and pray that God would grow us, knowing that he can. All right, let's come back to it. So let's read again verse 9 as we transition into this next section. It says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. One of the things that's important is that if God forgives your sin, there's nothing left to forgive. It's not one of those things where like God can clean you part of the way, but then you need to actually do good things to get the rest of the way. No, you can't make any progress of this on your own. God cleans you, God cleans you completely. So if God forgives you, your guilt is gone, right? But now, when we go on to verse 10 through 13, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Which, uh, one thing that's helpful to think about with context he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Do any of you guys know the story of Saul? What happened to Saul? Um, like King yep. Andrew. Yeah, King Saul. Yeah, he got jealous of David, tried to kill him. So David and Saul, they meet in a couple circumstances. I think the first time that David and Saul meet it's either when Saul is looking for a person to play the harp, or it's when David killed Goliath. One of the two. I think it was the harp first. The harp first? I should have gone back and checked, but whatever. Um, but basically, Saul is a king, and Saul is consistently rebellious to God. And so God says to Saul, yeah, I've removed you as king. I'm picking someone else to take your place. The kings in Israel had the Holy Spirit. It was not a normal thing for people in the Old Testament to have the Holy Spirit. It was actually an extremely rare thing. Like kings and prophets had it, and that was it. One of the wild things in the New Testament and in our age now is that every believer has the Holy Spirit. That was absolutely not the case. So Saul had the Holy Spirit. As king, when he got anointed, God's Spirit came into him. And then when God was judging Saul, he actually took his Spirit out of him. So for a Christian, it's not actually possible for us to lose the Holy Spirit. Losing the Holy Spirit would mean losing your salvation. But in the Old Testament, it was clearly possible. And so when David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me, David had seen that happen. One of the things that happened is that not only did God take away his Holy Spirit from Saul, he also sent demons to torment Saul. And so David had to play the harp so that the demons would stop tormenting Saul. And so David had seen someone who had the Holy Spirit removed from them and who had incurred God's judgment. And David is saying, please don't do that to me. So for us, when we're praying, take not your Holy Spirit from me, uh, that's not quite the same thing as what David would mean. For David, that was possible. For us, we're saying, God, secure our salvation. Because the Holy Spirit is the mark and the seal of our salvation. So when we're saying, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me, First of all, we know that he's not going to. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're keeping it. That is like an engagement ring that God's given to you as a promise that you're making it into heaven. 
But still, we can kind of pray that. We can be like, God, secure my salvation, guard my salvation. And there are times that you pray for things knowing that God's promised them. And so you pray, God, keep your promise. And it's not because you're worried that God's going to renege on his word, but it's to remind yourself that he won't. So David is saying this, having seen it happen. But here's the next thing. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Have you guys ever heard that song? Create in me a clean heart. Oh, that was one of my favorite songs growing up. This is where that comes from. Uh, It comes from like literally these verses. So in this one, we're saying, okay, in the previous one, we were saying there's a massive gap between who I am and what God wants me to be. God is able to bridge that gap. And in this section, we're saying, hey, God, bridge that gap. Create in me a clean heart. Internally, as a fundamental aspect of who I am, I am a sinner and a rebel. God, change me. Change me fundamentally, and God can do that. So, additionally, in verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. This is not David saying, Hey, God, if you forgive me, I'll preach your word. Hey, God, if uh, if you forgive me, I'll become a monk. I'll give you something back if you give me something. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Like, this is not some sort of transactional repentance. David is saying, make me a new person who will do these things. Instead of me being a sinner, rebelling against the things that you have for me, change me, make me righteous, and help me to be one of the people that then teaches other people to do the same. Not only do I not want to be a transgressor, I would like to be someone who teaches others to be righteous. Make me someone who's obedient. Make me someone who's actually useful for service. Where instead of using my time and my energy to actively do the things you don't want me to do, make me the kind of person that uses my time and my energy to do the things you want me to do. It's a fundamental change. This isn't some sort of transaction. This is instead David saying, I want to be an obedient person instead of a disobedient person. Like we've talked in the past about how if you apologize for something, but then you would just immediately keep on going and doing it again and again and again. And it's like, you have no desire to actually not do the thing. You just want to say sorry so that you can get rid of the consequences now, but you're still planning how you're going to do it tomorrow. Like, that's not repentance. And so David is saying, I'm sorry that I did this sin. Make me into the kind of person that won't do it again. He's not saying sorry so that he can go do it again. He's saying sorry because he wants to stop. So we're going to pray again for a few more minutes. Uh, We'll probably do three minutes this time. And as you pray, pray that God would grow your character. You aren't saying sorry so that you can go and commit that sin again. You want God to change you. Pray that God would make you into a person that he can use for his will. All right. So now we've looked at it. We've prayed and we've talked about our specific sin, praying that God would forgive us. We've talked about the difference between our character and the character that God wants us to have, that we didn't just sin that one time, but that we are sinners. And now we're praying that God would grow us. And if we look at verses 14 to 17, it says, Deliver me me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
which if you've ever heard people say things like, oh, in the, in the New Testament, you're saved by, by repentance and humility, but in the Old Testament, you're saved by offering sacrifices. You know, God's different in the two Testaments. No. Um, you will not delight in a sacrifice or I, would not, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In the Old Testament, God's priority was also the heart, just like in the New Testament. The people who say otherwise are the ones who haven't read their Old Testament. <laughs> like, this is not a book that was written in the New Testament that we're looking at right now, and yet, holy cow, that sounds a whole lot like the New Testament, don't it? <laughs> Whoa. Um, so, first of all, um, this is now talking about general salvation, right? Like, God of my salvation, so this is talking about, in the previous one, we were saying, uh, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And this is kind of a continuation of that, where it wasn't a transaction of, if you forgive my sin, I'll be a good person and I'll do things for you as though God needed our help. But this is a continuation of that where it's like, I want to teach transgressors your ways. I want to open my lips and uh, praise you. I would give you whatever it was that you wanted of me, but ultimately you want my heart, so I'll give you that. And this is a response to God's forgiveness. This is not any, like David's not particularly praying for repentance anymore by the time he gets to this section, but now he's instead praying for God's will in his life. So when you're praying for repentance, you're gonna find that there's a kind of general motion where you start with the specific sin that you've committed and already what we're talking about looks very different than, hey God, forgive me for that thing that I did. You know, forgive me for that thing that I did. Forgive me for the person that I am. Make me into the person that I ought to be. Help me to do the things I ought to do. We're in a very different space than where we started. So when you're looking at this, you're going to be praying that God would help you to do what you ought to do. It's not just that you don't want to do the bad thing. It's that you actively want to do the right thing. So pray that God would help you to actively want to do the right thing and that he would help you to do the right thing. You want to be someone helping God and accomplishing his purpose in the world instead of doing, being someone who's actively working against God's purposes. So we're going to pray again. This time we're going to do two minutes and then we're going to hit the final section. All right, I think that was about two minutes. And now we're going to finish this out. What happened? Maybe, I don't know. I've been hearing a lot of noises coming from outside this room. All right, so we're going to finish this out. Verse 18 and 19. David says, do good to Zion. Zion is like the temple mount. So that's basically the mountain of God. Do good, uh, do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will desire, der, del, words. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. So what you're seeing now is David is praying for God's will in the world kind of thing. Especially in the Old Testament, one of the main things that God was doing was God was building up Jerusalem. He was building up Zion. And so, David is now going from, like he started at, sorry for this sinful thing that I did. And now we're finishing at, God, have your will in the world. Which if I said to you, when you pray about forgiveness, you just need to pray, God, have your will in the world. You'd be like, I mean, okay, maybe, but like, what does that have to do with anything? So, David starts with, I have acted against the will of God in my life. I am a sinner. I am a rebel in my life. God, make me into someone who is obedient to your word and help me to live out your will in my life. In fact, I pray that your will would be acted out in the entire world. Our goal is to be agents of God's will. 
our goal is to be faithful to God. And so we started with repenting that our, that our life was not us following God's will. And then we finish with praying for God's will in general. Which if you're someone who's genuinely motivated by what God wants, that actually leads to you acting rightly in your life. And if you are motivated by what God wants generally, that also leads to you resisting sin in your life. And so we're not going to actually take time to pray for that, but you can do that afterward. But this is roughly what it looks like, again, to pray through a psalm. You're not going to the psalm, quoting the words and like throwing it out into the ether like a spell. You're looking at this and you're allowing this to, in a sense, be a model for your own repentance. And right now, I'm having you just like sit down and intentionally pray about sin in your life. But if there's sin going on in your life and then you find yourself in a position where you know you need to repent, you might open up your Bible to Psalm 51 and not quote the words, but read David's repentance and then in your own soul, repent. In a sense, follow the model. If you're not used to praying and you're not practiced in praying, looking at a psalm can give you an example and make it easier to train yourself up. It's like training wheels. So I'm hoping that this is helpful and maybe you'll go back home and do this again. Maybe sometime throughout the week or over the next few months, you'll just start reading the psalms. If nothing else, I want this to be a model of how you do you read a psalm and turn that into a prayer. So with that, let's bow our heads, pray it out, and hang out for a little bit. Lord, prayer is important. Thank you that you've told us, first of all, that prayer is important, but also that you've taught us how to pray. You've given us things like the Lord's Prayer. You've given us a book of almost 150 prayers, and you've given us example after example of people praying in the Bible. I pray that you would help us to pray genuinely, that we wouldn't pray like a spell book, but that we would pursue a relationship with you, that we wouldn't say a prayer, but that we would actually pray to you. Help us to be people who are repentant. Help us to be people who seek your will in the world and in our lives. And I pray that we would be people who ultimately are pursuing intimacy with you. Lord, I pray these things in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.